0: We've been practicing together now for five days, and it's quite a journey to enter deeply into our lives, to enter deeply into our experiences we have been doing, to allow ourselves to be touched by what we find, by what is revealed. And I'd like to just offer this evening some reflections on what we could call a compassionate response to life. In one sense we may think about practice and understand it as a a process of developing wisdom, which indeed it is. It is freedom, it seems. Which, sorry, it is wisdom, it seems, which ultimately frees our heart and our mind from suffering, from entanglement in and with the world. And yet, it is compassion that is needed from us to meet the suffering of our lives and the suffering we find in the world, to not just free our life in the world, but to heal the condition we find amidst us, within us and around us. We've talked and reflected on the importance and the central importance within the Buddha's teachings of contemplating the emptiness of separation, the way the experience of what we call ourselves and what we call the world arise together not independent from not separate from each other in such a deep and profound way that we perhaps begin to recognize there's no boundary to be ultimately made between what we call ourselves and what we call other and that this wisdom lies at the heart of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. From this point of contemplation, when we consider the world, when we consider ourselves, we may see that in fact each part of life, each expression of existence could be understood to be simply ourself in another form. Or not other in what it is than what we are. <coughs> so we could understand that selfishness, from that perspective, the tendency to want more for me, and the insatiable urge to get more for me—that this is actually a form of tragic self-denial. To withhold from others is actually to deny the part of ourselves. That is connected to them and expressed through them. And hatred of anything, in fact, ultimately is a form of self hatred. Because of all things, they're not separate from what we are. Anything to which we direct hatred is some part of ourself that we are experiencing hatred towards. This is not to make a judgment of that experience, but to reflect on the nature of what that is. And in fact, at an internal level, of course, what we hate when we hate something is the experience that we're having in the presence of that thing, person, concept, situation. And so equally here we can understand that from this perspective, all forms of hatred are self-harmful. And we can reflect on the process. I spoke about self and other last night. We can reflect on the process of othering. What happens when we not just perceive otherness, but we attribute value according to our definitions, our perceptions, or our beliefs or experiences, of what is the same as or different than ourselves. And othering involves not just a a differencing or a distancing or a separating, but inevitably a devaluing of what appears different in whoever or whatever we may call other. And that devaluing results in, we could say, gives rise to and equally justifies oppression and exploitation which is tragically endemic in our world, in our culture and in the lives around us and perhaps in our own. The experience of racism born of structures of systemic white privilege, white supremacy, privileging some at the expense of others. The impact of patriarchy and the systemic male privilege and the sexism that comes from this that are so profoundly harmful in our world. These are expressions of the the process of othering that devalues what is different and seeks to privilege one thing over another, one group over another. And these structural prejudices express themselves also as what we could equally call oppression, homophobia, transphobia, classism, ageism, ableism, the oppression and the repression and the suppression of so many expressions of life in its remarkable and beautiful diversity. The oppression and exploitation of so many peoples, especially but not only, but especially in the Global South, historically and ongoingly in our world today. There is so much suffering, so much that is hard to bear, so much that is hard to be subject to, for those people and beings who are subject to this, in all the different ways that they are. And it's hard simply even to be witness to it, For those forms one may not oneself be subject to, of this. Although, in fact, all oppression impacts all. But in different ways. I'm not trying to make an equivalence here. So when we contemplate this, the impact in our lives and in our world of this othering, of this making separate and different and then devaluing and oppressing or exploiting. We may also contemplate and see that the practice of non-harming is also a practice of protecting ourselves. We talk about sila, the precepts, the principle of not causing harm to others treating others as we would wish ourselves to be treated when we understand that we are not separate we cannot be separate from each other to not treat them as we would wish ourselves to be treated is to harm ourselves to share with others is in fact give to ourselves But this isn't what we find happening so often in the world and in our own lives too. The conditioning and the forces we've been subjected to from around us and arising within us through biological and evolutionary and historical, psychological, ancestral patternings are powerful but need to be acknowledged in their effect. And it's not just that we other those people who appear different than ourselves. We make the creatures, the plants, the very living ecosystems of our world other too and treat them as if we do not need to care for them, oppressing and exploiting again. And we can see the tragic effect of what is essentially a a materialism in its insatiable prioritising of consuming and its inability to recognise and to value anything beyond material possessions and consumption. And yet it seems we are collectively being called to understand more here. What we do to the world, what we do to another, we do to ourselves. Where we harm the world or another, we harm ourselves. And where we care for another, where we care for our world, we care for ourselves. John Francis, the black American ecological activist who was known, is known as Planet Walker for his commitment to give up using mechanised transport after seeing a, uh, the effect of a, an oil spill on the coast of the United States and he, he walked in silence for 20 years as a response to the horror of that that he saw. And he observed at one point, he said, simply, we are the environment. It's true. We're not in the environment. We are the environment. There isn't somewhere else. You know, we think about somewhere else. We've had this idea in our lives that there's somewhere else. We talk about it in meditation as the idea that there's somewhere else to get to. And maybe at some point we realize there isn't. But it's not just that there's not somewhere else to get to. There isn't somewhere else we can throw something away. Throw it away. What does that mean? It's like as if it's going to be somewhere else. Well, interestingly, it comes back, doesn't it? And what we've thrown away comes back, and we find it in our food. We find it in the organs of our children. Because there is no way to which we can throw something. There is no somewhere else we can put the... Results of our human activity. And our failure to collectively understand and live according to this means that we are in an emergency. A slow but inexorable moving, and only slow according to one way of looking at it, emergency, the climate and ecological emergency that is getting a little more airtime in the newspapers these days because the upcoming international conference, COP26, which I'm imagining you'll be aware of, or many of you will. Code red, I think was the phrase that was used in the most recent report of the United Nations panel on uh, climate change. And we need to respond, individually and collectively. Compassion is the response that comes quite naturally from us when we realise we are connected, when we realise, when we understand in the very depth of our bones and our cells and our heart and our life, that we are not separate. And that the messages around us that suggest what we put out comes back are speaking to us of this again and again. Taking care of others is taking care of ourselves. Deva said, the, uh, I think I mentioned him this morning it was, wasn't it? Shantideva, who is a, a remarkable teacher and practitioner. I think in about the 6th century he lived in India. And he once observed, he said, when acting on behalf of others, No amazement arises in me. Like feeding myself, just like feeding myself. I expect nothing in return. What might it mean if we would live in this way? what might it mean for ourselves and for our world? If we should care equally for who and what we call other as we do for who and what we call self. In these teachings, the quality of compassion is understood as that Quality of heart and mind, which is opposed to cruelty, which is the wish to cause pain or the disregard of pain or harm that might be caused in the pursuit of one's self interest. And it expresses itself as a wish to relieve, to heal, to bring to an end that pain, that suffering of others and ourselves. It's not something like what we sometimes think of or imagine similar to it as pity, which which kind of is always distant and separate from. And it's someone else's problem when we pity them. When we recognize the shared nature of suffering, compassion, it's the togetherness in the suffering. And although passion isn't often used that way in our common English usage these days, its it's earlier meaning is to do with suffering. Talk about the passion of Christ and his experience on the cross. Suffering. Compassion. Suffering with. it generates connection when we open to it. It creates separation when we resist it. So our practicing, (coughs) our practicing in meeting and opening to what is uncomfortable is also a practicing of our Ability to access and stay present in the connecting with what we share. And one, not the only, but one of the primary ways our shared experience, the shared nature of our existence is expressed. Which is in that which we find hard to bear. And it's not a feeling as such, although it might include a tenderness, a rawness, an openness, a feeling of being touched or or a kind of a a trembling of the heart. But the word the Buddha used for compassion, karuna, it's actually a response. It's a thought or a word or a deed. It might just be a thought because there's not much more we have, but it can be so much more. And yet, It's any form of action, and we can act through deeds, through words, and equally through thoughts. This is something the Buddha understood. Our thoughts are actions. They have an effect. We've noticed that probably on the retreat. Our thoughts have an effect. And just the wish, may you be free of pain is an action. Actually finding some way to do something to relieve the pain of another is also an action. And yet the underlying where that comes from is this tender resonance with and care and concern for the suffering. And I've shared a few pieces of Rio Khan's poetry here Beautiful um, sort of member of the—I don't know how to say—sort of the, the characters of, of, of the sort of the Buddhist lineages, and he, he was a, a Zen monk and a poet and a hermit, and I, I just love his poetry. Lived a simple life in a hut in the mountains, and he once he once said. Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all the beings in this floating world. And just that sense of what it is to want to gather up all the beings in the floating world, the the world that's kind of unstable, as it is for us all in certain ways, and gather them up. Not a response from aversion or not liking of pain in oneself or another, but this compassion that's open to feeling and being touched by what is uncomfortable, difficult, or exquisitely hard to bear. And yet in that staying connected, wishes to relieve and respond. So in our practice, when we're aware of this and we learn to move towards, to know we can also back off at times. Sometimes it's not the moment to move further or closer towards. When our capacity to hold or to meet or to handle what is here comes to its fullness or its limits, as there are limits for us all, we sometimes need to say, that's enough for now, and step back. and yet see what we can do, where those opportunities present themselves. Mother Teresa, the saint of Calcutta, as she was sometimes known, once said, we are not called to do great things, but just, or simply to do small things with great love. Something beautiful and profound in this. And... uh, when I was first traveling in India and I think I mentioned I was going to visit my grandmother in Calcutta Um, and I while I was there also went to visit the um, (coughs) the orphanage run by the Order of Mother Teresa Um, I think it's the Sisters of Mercy or Charity or, or something, I can't remember now the name of the Order but I went to this place called Shishi Bhavan, children's home. that means essentially and I was told when I got there with a friend that we were really only able to make a short visit because for cultural reasons men weren't allowed to work with babies and young children and just culturally that wasn't comfortable for them, so we couldn't volunteer to work there but we could make a little visit and Firstly, we went into this room with all these sort of um probably two to five or six year old children, and they all just, just came running up for it. say hello, and yeah, you know, hey, uncle, 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 because everyone's related. They know that in India. Um, <clears throat> it was very sweet and lovely, and then we went and spent some time with these, these young, young children, and then we went into the room where the babies were, and it was a room probably larger than this hall, and there were rows of cots, packed together with room for one person to walk between them, row after row, cot after cot, and in each cot, two babies. And in the room, probably four of the, the nuns of the order, who were equipped with bottles of milk and cloths and cleaning. And they were either feeding the babies or they were cleaning the babies. And they were moving from one to the next, boom, 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 as we walked in. These babies turned and the ones that could looked at us or reached their arms up or started to pull themselves up on the side of the cot and reach towards us. And my friend and I, we immediately saw what was here. It was like the nuns looking after these children have just enough time to feed them and clean them and they don't have time to pick them up. And the babies were there. so it's a room full of babies there's just the two of us we have been told we can stay for an hour or two so we just pick them up and just it's like a limpet going on these babies knew what they wanted it's like oh so sweet but also so tender because there's a room full of these little creatures so having to peel it off this little being after a little while and put it down and pick up another one and wow You know, and it's like, thank you to these little creatures, these little beings. But then having to put it down and pick up it. In the time we were allowed to stay, we didn't get through maybe more than half of the little babies in the room. And it was heartbreaking to leave. But there was also something about having done what we could. I remember having the thought at the time I could spend my life in this room walking around, picking up these babies one at a time and hugging them. And there isn't another version of my life that would be better than that or more meaningful or more beautiful. And it's quite possible that would have been and is or was true. But it wasn't what was allowed or possible to happen. And if it had been, I'm not sure I would have chosen that. But there was something about allowing our heart and for my friend both of us to break but also just do what we could and then okay we walked out to do what we can is what is asked of each and every one of us and it always makes a difference a drop in the ocean raises the level all the way around the world And sometimes it's the sweet and tender territories of holding. (coughs) And sometimes it's a fiercer situation we face. And (coughs) the Buddha talks about a a fierce compassion also, a quality of protection. Where the image he uses is the image of of a mother standing. And it's recorded as a mother, but I the translator as a parent or even just a responsible adult standing at the door of a room in which there was a child or a baby and coming towards the door of someone wishing to harm that baby and that mother that parent that responsible adult would just be saying no you're not coming in there's no way you're coming through my body with that intention to harm this child, this baby. And I put my hand up as I say it, without even thinking about it. And some of you will know this is a mudra that the Buddha is sometimes seen in, that expresses this quality of stop, of no, of protective, fierce compassion, that says, I will not stand by and allow harm to take place, so far as I can prevent it. And in recent years, the last three years now, I've been involved in protests with regard to the climate and ecological emergency and the activism movement, Extinction Rebellion. And from the very first protests, and I've been involved in these in many different shapes and forms, and actually stopping, bringing this quality of no we somehow must find a way to stop a harm that is taking place. And engaging in non-violent civil disobedience to the point of, of arrest, of being thrown in the cells on what is now, seems like numerous occasions. Because for me this seems like we have to do something here. to wake us up together, collectively, to generate the public awareness and the political will for addressing the harm that is happening, even if its greater effects are mostly distant in other parts of the world or distant in time, in the generation of our children and theirs. The worst of it will show, but not so distant that we can't see it from here. We can. It's clear enough. And that we might engage in such things. And for myself, it's because actually this is the deeper protection of us all. It's not just to stop the harm, but also for the well-being of those who cause the harm, of which we are also equally part. Well, not equally There are greater degrees of responsibility and attribution of causative impact. But we are all also at other levels participative in these things. So we can't make it dependent on saying there's some good people and some bad people. That doesn't work. We need to see what can I do without having to be perfect ourselves or expecting anyone else to be. To care for everyone involved in this the remarkable practitioner and um, teacher, Su Yun, or Empty Cloud, who lived in, in China in the mostly 19th and into the early 20th century, was in his, it's believed, sort of 11th decade of life, somewhere between 100 and 110, when, because he was such a highly respected leader and was speaking up against the, the authorities and the powers that be and the culture he was in, was beaten to within what we would probably say was inches of his life by some thugs. And his disciples found him. His body broken. And they said to a Master, we see how deeply harmed your body is. How painful it must be for you to stay here. And we know that you would probably endure to continue to give us the teachings when it might be easier for you to let yourself go. And we give you permission to go if you need to go. Please don't feel you have to stay for us. And such a a beautiful response to their teacher, who of course they would have wished not to die. And Empty Cloud responded, he said, You're right, I could let myself go. My body is in pain. But you know I'm not going to, because I don't want those who beat me To have my life on their conscience. It's like, wow. This man understands something. Profound and beautiful. We need to understand, of course, that compassion must always be held within the framework of balance and the middle way, as the Buddha's teachings about the balance between the extremes, all kinds of extremes. But here, compassion must find balance between what we call, or what appears to be self and other. It's not about self-sacrifice. Certainly not always about self-sacrifice. It's not about what I or you should but about what we are moved to do and what is possible. Sometimes it moves towards what we might call someone else. And we can go with that. Sometimes we find actually it's not arising. And that's an uncomfortable place to see that there is some suffering or some need and actually I'm not sure I want to help. Or I'm not sure I want to take on the cost that helping might involve for me. And that's a place where we need to turn the compassion to ourselves and say, oh, okay, this is where you're hitting your limits or your fear or your whatever it is that holds me back from living according to what my heart might say. But my, my less, less awakened parts are saying, no, 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 we're not going there. Or sometimes my awakened part is saying, actually, no, that's not going to be helpful. We don't know that for sure always. But we do need, when we notice that we're in a situation maybe we could act and we're choosing not to, that's a place that's going to be tender for whatever reason we choose not to act. When someone asks us for money on the street, and we're not sure if it'll help them to give it to them. And I'm often in that situation where I'm not sure if I give this person money, will it help them? Or will they use it in a way that might harm them? And it's not for me to make that decision, but nonetheless, I don't always know. And I try and buy them some food if they say they're hungry, but I don't always have time to do that. So sometimes I just walk past. But I try and just let myself feel that that's not comfortable. To just walk past and to hold my own limitation and my own fear and my own suffering that I maybe am not yet able to open to with that same kindness. To have compassion for our own neediness and fear that makes it hard for us to give things, to share things, to go out of our way sometimes for others who need something we may be able to offer, but have not offered them. To turn to ourselves with compassion for this. Because it is dukkha. It's hard to bear. And yet it's also part of our human experience. It happens like this. And sometimes we need to ask for help. When I was in India just um, now four or five years ago, I went back for the very first time in um, what was about 15 years because my grandmother was turning 100 and I wanted to be there and be with her in India for her 100th birthday. And it was lovely to do that, um, and to be amongst some of her family and friends there. She's actually 105 now, she's still alive. Amazing. But anyway, while I was there, I also returned to Budgaya where I first encountered these teachings and practices, and spent a lot of time. Where I loved the, this little village as it was then, and rather large and noisy, dirty town now. And there was something that was sort of quite not quite finished for me. I realized when I came there because in the, all the years I'd gone, there'd been this remarkable human being whose legs were shriveled with polio, but who used to sit amongst. All these beggars, of whom there were many in Budgaya, because many pilgrims come and it's a good thing for pilgrims to be generous to the unfortunate, so they do quite well, many of them it seems. That's a relative term, of course. But whatever it is, it attracts people to come to beg in Budgaya. They don't do that well at all, to be honest. But compared to other places, they do better. But this person had touched me, and so many times I'd sat beside him and just felt a sort of a light and a love and a peace in his eyes and his presence. I just shared some food or given him a little bit of money, but you can't give a beggar much money. Because as soon as someone sees he's got much money, they'll beat him and take it off him. He can't move. He's he's on a little square of wood with wheels on it to push himself around on these bumpy gravel roads. That's his mobility. But there was always, always something that touched me about him and... Yet I couldn't speak a word of his language, so I I never spoke to him beyond a few words of English, which I didn't even know if he understood. All the times I visited him over those years, he was always there. And when I went back to Budgaya, there was this part of me that thought, he'll be gone. Anything I might have been able to give him that I didn't, it'll be too late now. And I really felt a sadness of it in my heart. He'd been such a significant... Part of my experience there. And then as I walked down through the marketplace and round into the area where he was never in the midst of the most sort of intense area of beggar activity, he was just sat in a sort of quiet, dignified way to one side. And so I walked into town, there he was. Amazing. Sixteen years later, he lived that long. More, he looked, he'd looked old already. And I just went up to him and smiled. and like, I don't think he would have known me from whoever but it didn't matter it was just oh, how lovely is this I went not got some food but then again I was like oh, I can't help this person I can't even talk to him and somehow I realised oh my gosh maybe I could ask someone else who could talk to him why that didn't occur to me all those years before I wasn't very good at asking for help it's something I've had to learn and practice I'm still on the way I haven't got there yet but I spotted the need I asked another traveller, in fact an American who lived in the village, who spoke Hindi, he came and he he talked to him, he's like, Sita, now I know his name, now we can talk now we can actually, oh he's got a family that's why he's doing a bit better and so, we you know my friend got, anyway I won't tell you the whole story but we bundled him into a little auto rickshaw, I didn't but this other guy just picked him up, put him in a rickshaw we drove to where his family was and I was able to actually do something that would last beyond a meal and a few pennies, rupees, for his family. Which didn't cost me that much, but my gosh, from my heart it felt so good. And it's still a drop in the bucket for his life. But I felt like, ah, I was able to do more, because I allowed myself to stay with that. And I'm saying these things not because I'm so good at all of this, but because it's important that we find ways to express our wish to. To share and to help and to care for. Even when it doesn't seem like there's an obvious pathway for how to do that. And we need to take care with ourselves. Because if we give out too much and don't take care of ourselves, we can get out of balance. Just as it's profoundly harmful at a spiritual level to be always um, taking for myself and never concerned with others. It's equally harmful and damaging if I'm only concerned with others and not with taking care of this one. Again, balance is what is called for. And um, I remember being struck reading an article by a, a Zen monk who was a very committed activist. And he observed that he said... I need to do seven days of practice and inner work for every one day of outer engaged activism in order to stay in balance. Oh, well, that's a lot. It's probably about right. Of course, one may not always feel one has the time to make that balance, but just looking at that, looking at that, where is the balance here for me? And balance is also supported by understanding. Understanding that ultimately the happiness of beings is not dependent on ourselves or what we do or don't do, but much more upon how each of us chooses to live our lives within the difficult or fortunate circumstances that we encounter. In the teachings of the Buddha, there's this understanding that how we live, what we cultivate, what we develop in our life, in a sense what we give to life, we could say, is more determinative and definitive of the quality of our life than what we get from it or what it gives to us. And even sometimes people who've been given the hardest and rawest deal one could imagine, have nonetheless turned to that circumstance and found a way to give back something that has made their life something beautiful. There are stories like this. Not to romanticize it, because having a difficult situation is not an easy thing, but that in itself is not the end of the matter. And having a fortunate situation gives us a responsibility to make good use of it where we have privilege to make use of it in the support of those who do not. So compassionate Response, a compassionate response. This is the natural and essential expression of our awakening heart. To be unbound, unboundaried and unbound, is to know freedom. But to know the lived movement of compassion is to find peace with the human realm not outside of it. Our welfare our well-being and the well-being of all that is around us are bound together. And so we practice here for the benefit of all. Equally as for our own benefit and for the benefit of those who we care for and feel close to. So this is an invitation to an aspiration, however that may look or sound or feel for you. In terms always of what is possible. Not a should or a must or a have to, but what might be possible. And who knows what that will look like for anyone else, or, or even ourselves. But nonetheless, I'll share with you to finish the words of Shantideva from his most famous body of teaching called the Bodhicharya Vatara, which is the, the Bodhisattva's way of life, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And the Bodhisattva is one who's living this awakening compassion for the welfare of all of life. And he says, May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light and for those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a helper, may I be a servant. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus for every single thing that lives, vast in number, like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment, until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. Let's sit for a few moments together. So, so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives may we be touched and carried by the flow of deep compassion in our hearts and into our world for the healing for the protection for the welfare and the well-being of all, for ourselves and each other, for all that lives, for all of life, and for all that is in any way or form. May compassion flow to touch all this, to heal and to hold.